0: This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts
1: right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's
2: great to have you here on uh, Real Talk this Monday, March 6th. Ryan Jesperson, John Hicks on the heels of a great weekend. And, of course, uh, a lot going on around us, including a scandal, a story out of Alberta's energy sector, a northern Alberta First Nations leader accusing Imperial Oil of a nine-month cover-up over a massive release of toxic oil sands tailings. On land near where his band harvests food, we're talking about Athabasca Chip First Nation Chief Alan Adam, who will be joining us in just moments. Uh, we're going to get his sense of where his community goes from here and why this story, in his estimation, hasn't changed one bit. In the two years since we last spoke with Chief Adam right here on this show, you may remember that interview where he was talking about how nothing's changed with regards to pollutants from industry causing illness, in some cases terminal cancers among members of that community. He's calling it a cover up. It is, without a doubt, a scandal. And Albertans wondering right now who... If anyone can trust Alberta's energy regulator. It's a question we're going to put in front of a federal minister, Randy Boisno, who will join us as well in just a second. He's here to talk about the big health care deal that Alberta and Ottawa struck just a few days ago, $24 billion between the two different levels of government to help address some of the very real strains that not just Albertans are feeling in the health care system, but Canadians from coast to coast to coast all in. Uh, just last month, the government of Canada announcing an investment of nearly $200 billion over 10 years. The question is, will it work? Is it the be all and end all solution? And oftentimes, for us to have a fulsome perspective on this, we ask you, members of this audience who oftentimes work in healthcare or have walked miles in the shoes of people, maybe even yourselves, who are navigating that system. You can be in touch with us anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. If you happen to be among those that are watching our live stream on YouTube, if you're streaming the audio live on the Mixler app presented by California Closets, you can also, of course, hit us up with our hashtag on Twitter, #RealTalkRJ, RJ, or comment in the YouTube live chat. Later this show, in about a half an hour from now, we're going to check in with an advocate for Aish, Andrew Green's a lawyer with the Edmonton Community Legal Center, and he's basically, well, in, in layperson's terms, he's he's sick and tired. He's fed up with the way that Alberta's treating its most vulnerable citizens. We're going to talk about Aish. Many of you have been asking us to for quite some time. We wanted to get an informed voice on this, somebody who has seen how the system works or doesn't work and Andrew Green's going to bring that to us in positive reflections presented by Kubi Energy before we wrap today's show an unbelievable story of survival it's a good news story following an avalanche in the Swiss Alps. You've got to see this video to believe it. It really is remarkable. Randy Boissnow is Canada's Minister of Tourism. He's also the Associate Minister of Finance. He's the Member of Parliament for Edmonton Centre, and he's joining us live on this Monday. Minister, thanks for making time for us. We're happy to have you here on the show. We certainly want to talk healthcare with you. As I mentioned, um, I'm going to be talking to uh, Chief Alan Adam as well of the Athabasca mm-hmm. Chipewyan First Nation. This is a story that broke late last week. I know a lot of people are outraged about what's been happening or the Cairns operation in, in, in the Fort McMurray area, the, the leaks, the sustained leaks uh, out of this oil sands tailings pond. I know it's the Alberta Energy Regular. I know a lot of, of, a lot of this is provincial jurisdiction, but not all of it. As a federal politician and a minister of the crown, how do you wrap your mind around this story, and what do you think the feds can do?
1: So, thanks, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to be with you on on Real Talk. And look, when it comes to making sure that we're doing the best to fuel the world and feed the world and, and power the world, we've got to make sure that our oil sands technology, that includes tailing ponds, is not just up to standard, but beyond what the minimum standards require. And so Imperial Oil is going to have to work with Chief Alan Adam and the regulator to fix this. It's that simple. Uh, it's not acceptable to have longstanding um, you know, regulations in place and then either know about it and not do something about it or simply not have the pawns up to up to snuff. It makes our job as government harder when industry partners aren't meeting their standards. And in this case, Environment Canada is working very closely with Minister Savage and Ministers high duty and um, Miller, who are both responsible for Indigenous matters in our government, are also working with their counterparts to see how we can help. I have a lot of respect for Chief Alan Adam, and and my heart goes out to everybody on the Chippewan First on the Athabascan Chippewan First Nation on this in this matter.
2: As a, as a federal minister responsible for tourism in Canada, how much of a black eye is this on the province of Alberta?
1: Look, I think it's taken us a long time to get past this idea of Alberta not doing its uh, its part on making sure that we respect the environment and that we are uh, a welcoming province. We're one of the big four provinces, Ryan. I think you and I have talked about that before. Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, BC, big four provinces in terms of tourism. And we've got to continue to do better. I will say that as the world is looking for more energy Uh, we're not going to get to net zero without the Alberta pathways and without that group of of smart workers and industry leaders. And so we're all in this together. And when something like this happens, the industry has got to step up and and demonstrate that it's going to take better measures in the future. And the regulator also has to lean in and make sure that it's doing its job.
2: Do you have confidence in the Alberta energy regulator?
1: Look, you know that that's a provincial matter. And it's it's an important question. I think all regulators can continue to raise their game throughout time. And uh, you got to hold these big oil companies to account. I work with uh, the proponents of Pathways on a regular basis. And I could tell you, I'm not happy about this, and, and neither should Albertans
2: be. Okay. Let's talk about this healthcare deal. It's a big one $24 yeah, sure. billion. Dollars. Ottawa and Alberta is part of a, a much bigger uh, deal, of course, between Ottawa and the provinces, nearly $200 billion. How significant is it to, to, to just? reach this deal first can you talk to us about what went into it obviously you ring your associate finance minister cap right now
1: so it's a it's a great question and look this has been uh in the works for some time we have seen the stresses of the healthcare system and ryan i think if you go back to the pandemic and if i add up the numbers it's 72 billion dollars that the federal government transferred directly to the provinces for health during the pandemic that's in addition to another 440 billion dollars to get us through the pandemic and so To put together 200 billion over 10 years is a big deal. It's a big part of our fiscal frame. What does that mean? It's a big part of our budget this year and for many years going forward to allocate that much money. And the deal with Alberta, is it's, it's a big deal. It's an important deal. It's $24 billion over the next 10 years and $233 million right off the start to do some really important things, to get healthcare workers back in the system, to reduce the wait times, to make sure that our emergency wait times come down, to make sure that people have access to a family doc and, uh, and nursing care. And quite frankly, also, Ryan, we also really got to see how hard the pandemic was on people's mental health. And so we're making sure that we can actually, you know, put a dotted line between the money that goes into the province and how that money gets to people who need mental health support. So this time for the first time, we're actually asking the the provinces to provide us with the information back on terms of how they're spending the money uh, so that we actually can see across the country, how the health outcomes are. And I'm really excited about what that means for Alberta because our Alberta health services has, you know, information on four and a half million people. And if you take a look at the rest of the country, Ryan, there's 99 other health regions in Canada. And we're the province that's actually got the most amount of data of any jurisdiction uh, in Canada. So I think this is going to be good for Albertans and the United um nurses of Alberta came out and said that this was exactly what was needed at the right time.
2: Yeah, the, the, it's always interesting when you talk about jurisdictions, right? The province and the feds and, mm-hmm. and whether it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not to go off down rabbit holes, but whether it's the coots, <laughs> you know, the coots border blockade, right? And people are yeah. going, well, it's a border crossing, so it's the feds. And then the, everyone's going, well, I don't know, though, it's the province. The province should handle it. Same thing happens with health care, right? The premiers, the first minister's meeting, remember, you know, former B.C. Premier John Horgan uh, quarterbacking that and, and calling yep. on the feds to do more. He says this is Ottawa's province. And, and, and Health Minister Duclos' response was if I can paraphrase generally. Yeah, it's kind of part of the fault of the provinces. I mean, you guys have been administering this, right? And and, and meantime, Canadians are going. Can, can you all just fix it? So we come up with the, this this windfall of investment from the feds and over to the provinces. But now you you know Ottawa wants accountability. You know, you want feedback. You want you want to have some oversight, if you will. You may not prefer that word, but you want to have a sense that the money's going to be going where it works. Is there pushback from the provinces on this? And and to what degree? You know. Do do you think that that maybe tweaks or changes to that accountability side of things might rile up or irk provinces like Alberta who have a bit of a history with Ottawa? I think everybody understands what I'm saying.
1: You, you don't have to speak in code with me, Ryan. The oldest playbook in the in the books and growing up in Loughey days is take a shot at the feds, right? And make some points provincially. Yeah. So uh, look, it took a while, I think, for us. As a group, I think the premier's you know, held out a long time to not want to give us data and share where the money's going because you're right. When when we pass the money over from us to them, they've got the responsibility for administering the acute phase of health. But quite frankly, when I'm right, when I'm knocking doors and when my colleagues are knocking doors around the country, what they're hearing from residents is fix this, get it done, get to a health deal. We don't care what jurisdiction, we don't care whether it's the province or you just make sure that I can go see a family doc and that my kid doesn't have to spend eight hours at emerge with a broken arm or something worse. And so I do think it took us a while to get there, but the provinces have come on board and look how quickly premier Smith and her team signed on board. Um, I think that it's a good day for Albertans and a good day for Canadians. And I want to see families that have been waiting for a family doc for months to know that they're going to have one. And I want to know, look, I want also want people to know that they're able to get their health care with their health card, not their credit card. And the other thing through this Ryan, and I'll share this cause it, it, it put a really important point on it for me. We call the federal department minister to close department, health Canada, not healthcare Canada. And why is that? Cause healthcare is about 20% of us being healthy, Albertans and healthy Canadians. And so if you think about everything else from, you know, managing and mitigating poverty to making sure we all have access to good food, to shelter, to the fact that we have a good job that we're able to, you know, self-actualize, that we're able to, those social determinants of health and the, the communities that we build, the preventative exercise that we get, you know, losing the extra 10 COVID pounds, all that stuff comes to being healthy. And so this deal helps with the acute phase and then, governments and society have to do our part to make sure that we stay healthy because i have seen it happen with many of my friends and family members you don't know how much you miss your health until you don't have it so yeah we're happy to have made this 24 billion dollar investment in alberta
2: all right good stuff minister i know you've got a a full deck this morning and so do we so we'll thank you for your time (laughs) we'll see you again sometime soon
1: Thanks. Take care, Ryan. Yeah, you all got it.
2: You All the best Bye-bye. to you as well. That's Federal Tourism Minister, Associate Minister of Finance, uh, Randy Boisno, the MP for Edmonton Center. Coming up in one minute, Chief Alan Adam of the athabasca Chipewyan First Nation will get his sense. He's been in the bullpen. He's been listening to that conversation with Minister Boisno. To be clear, this is more a provincial jurisdiction than a federal one, but that doesn't mean that I would imagine senior politicians and elected leaders, as well as members of the public service in Ottawa, aren't keeping a keen eye on what's happening right now with what's being... Described by Chief Adam as a toxic cover-up, a nine-month sustained cover-up. We're talking about people's health here. Uh, in a scenario, as I as I talked about with Sarah Lurinik, the uh, journalist on Friday, climate journalist. CAJ Award nominated uh, journalist uh, about something that's been happening. This has been happening for years and it's no wonder that this community is absolutely exasperated and outraged. Uh, These conversations are presented by sponsors like Friesen Brothers who want to remind you that, you know, sure, we all enjoy thinking about tropical vacations and, and getting away this time of year during those winter months. It seems like it's stretching on forever. So Friesen Brothers believes it's the perfect time to celebrate all things tropical yeah, that's right. During this week at Frozen Brothers, you can discover exotic tropical fruits like dragon fruit, star fruit, passion fruit. It's called ugly fruit, John. You know it's ripe when it turns ugly. And a lot of other offers that can make you, I don't know, feel warmer. Find more information in the weekly flyer online at com. That's F-R-E-S-O-N.com. Love this. I got a text message over the weekend from my friend Allison. Allison reaches out to me and, and she says, Hey, is Park Power actually worth it? I said, you bet it is. So she goes online to parkpower.ca and well checks out for herself, comparing the rates on internet, electricity, and natural gas. And at the end of the day, I can tell you that you're going to save money if you do what Allison did, which is bundle all three services using the promo code REALTALK23. That's REALTALK23.com. Knocks 50 bucks per utility off your first bill. So Allison's going to save 150 bucks off her first bill, taking her business on electricity, natural gas, and internet over to Park Power at parkpower.ca using the promo code RealTalk23. That's RealTalk23. This story broke last week, but quite frankly, To do justice to this story, let's point out that this has been happening for a long time. And I'm not just talking about the nine months that a massive release of toxic oil sands tailings have been polluting land and water near where community members from the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation harvest their food. This has long been a contentious relationship between industry and this First Nation who has seen many members of its community uh, diagnosed with terminal cancers in many circumstances losing their lives. They say that this has not been taken seriously by regulators, by elected officials, by anybody associated with energy operations in the region. Chief Alan Adam joined us two years ago to talk about this, and it would appear as though nothing has changed chief of the Athabasca Chip First Nation joining us live on this Monday. I, I wish that when you and I connected, we weren't always talking about the same thing, chief. And I can't even imagine where your head's at right now. Can you, can you, can you try to find the words for it? When did you first find out about this spawn leak?
3: Two weeks ago when I was informed by the chief of the Fort Mackay First Nation, he called me up around 1030 at night and informed me that there was a spill at the Curl Lake, uh, oil sands my site and from then on i did my thorough investigation and uh found out to be true
2: so this is something i hate to say it that that probably based on your community's history with this industry came as no surprise did it did it did you feel any different about this than than you did about the previous leaks the previous pollutants i mean what's changed
3: well, you know, the thing that changed about this is that this is a new mine site, uh, a newer Taylor's Pond. Uh, it should have been built up to date with the more regulatory uh, standards whatsoever, but it seemed to be that, you know, there's uh, wrong aggregates that were used in this, in this matter, and therefore, you know, it was just prone to over time saturated and start to leak.
2: Can you tell us about th- this region and and the land near where this uh, the these toxins have have been released? My understanding is that this is this is prime territory for your community members to be harvesting food.
3: The area that the uh, water has been released is on the Firebag River. Firebag River is located just south of uh, Fort Chipewyan, and it's uh, located uh, adjacent to the Athabasca River. And when you look at the vicinity from where uh, the Pond water comes from, it's within probably about maybe 30 miles upstream, and it uh, drains down into the Athabasca River. And all of those areas uh, have been used and utilized over the years and even been used last fall to harvest uh, wild food and everything and berries and stuff like that. We, don't, we can't determine how much wild game was harvested from that area, but we know for a fact that uh, people went in there and harvested uh, wild
2: game. My understanding is, though, that you've instructed members of your community to essentially dispose of, of any food, in, including uh, hunting, uh, that, that has been collected since May. Is that right?
3: Yes, we've informed our members that if they had uh, collected any kind of wild food or berries or anything from the, the Curl Lake uh, mine site within that area downstream, please disregard your food uh, because it's not safe to eat.
2: You'll have to pardon such a what I believe to be an, a, a question with probably an obvious answer. But what's been the response from your community members?
3: They're in up in arms, like you know, it's they rely on the regulator, they rely on, you know, industry to comply to their regulations for them to obtain their license. And this time, you know, when you look at the magnitude of this whole thing, nine months it's been brewing, uh, that's 270 days times uh, 5.3, that's probably about 1 trillion, 400 and something billion liters of uh, toxic material that leaked into the system that we don't know of. And the only reason why I say that is because uh, it was recorded that in one day 5.3 million liters of toxic was in, released into the ecosystem. So if you times that by 270, that's what you come up with is uh, 1, 500 or 400 and something billion liters.
2: I mean, you can't even wrap your mind around it. I I just did some quick math on my phone for people. I think sometimes I need to visualize something. You talk about you know 5.3 million liters leaking in one day. That's about 5,300 hot tubs uh, in one day to give people an idea, a perspective on the magnitude of this spill. So now what? Your your First Nation, your community is 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 hiring investigators to come here and do testing. I mean, what? Where, where's the Alberta Energy Regulator in this? Where's Imperial Oil in this? I mean, is this all hands on deck? Are they sounding the alarm why why is your first nation responsible for this or do you want to have information do you want to have you know conclusions that you believe you can trust right now
3: well the reason why that our first nation is in there is because we have a community-based monitoring program that we've been having for about maybe nine years or so and um, we believe that if we're going to get the credible information that's out there. We have to send our own community based monitoring program into the site to do their own monitoring and then we will get our analysis from there.
2: I, uh, you know, it's hard here to, we hear from people, we're, we're talking about orphan wells and we're talking about liabilities across the province here, bigger picture, uh, just a couple of weeks ago on this show and, and we had some voices, uh, Reagan Boychuk, Mark Doran talking about a, a lack of trust that they have, a lack of trust quite frankly that they believe that the public should have in Alberta's energy regulator. Right now, I mean, what do you want the average Albertan, what do you want the average person in Canada to understand about this story?
3: Well, you know, when it comes to economic development and job creation and all these other things, uh, you got to take into factors that if you don't do things right, there's going to be somebody that's going to be affected by your operations. And right now, uh, Curl Lake has been in operations since 2007, and we are the ones that are the recipients of uh, for design
2: yeah i mean i just it it, it's hard to to understand um like i i I just i i I don't have the words chief and and i appreciate your availability on this interview because quite frankly and i'm not i'm not trying to rile you up but but if i was you i I would i i don't know what the point i would be at as mentioned you and i talked a couple of years ago about cancers that you've seen in your community and other health impacts that you've seen in, in your community and it, it just strikes me as though nothing has changed has there been any serious action taken by by industry has there been any serious action taken by provincial ministries I mean have you heard from the premier's office on this this to me is is, is a, a full alarm this is a, this is a, a not even to mention the health crisis not to mention the potential disastrous impact this could have on people's health. But I mean, even just, a—I described this to the tourism ministers as a black eye for the province. I mean, this is just not a good look whatsoever. Do you get the sense that with the prominence of this story, that maybe the province will be taking this seriously?
3: No, they brushed it off. Like, you know, I still have, you know, I like, the story broke uh, on Friday. Um I finally received a call from the AER on Monday night, and I've also received a call from uh, the ADM of uh, the uh, environment from Alberta. But other than that, you know, they haven't really determined or called me to to, to tell me still today that uh, there's something wrong.
2: So what is, Uh, like, Chief, what does the AER say to you?
3: (laughs) You know, that's crazy one that when um they're coming up to the community to speak with us tomorrow um i i can't speak for them i don't know what what's their problem I, i i try to tell them that you know if you're going to approve a project at least let the community know when there's something wrong don't let it fester for nine months and then cover it up and when you can't cover it up anymore when the story is too too big to contain um why put your tail between your legs and run when you know you've been caught red-handed
2: do you have uh to the to the extent that you're prepared or willing to talk about this when you're describing it as a cover-up Have you seen information or or do you have just some obvious conclusions that you've arrived at that lead you to believe that Imperial Oil was well aware of this horrific leak up to nine months before this story broke? What gives you the confidence to call it a cover up?
3: Because they they sent us an email nine months ago stating that they had discoloration of water in their system. And And at that time, they said it was just a minor error and that they would correct it and that the Alberta regulator was involved with it. And then when it kept on continuing to grow, um, it was just recently that when uh, 5.3 million liters of tailings overspilled the berm, that the Alberta regulator couldn't be involved anymore because uh, this was beyond their scope and they had to report it. And once that was reported, the Alberta regulator walked away with uh from Imperial and said, you're on your own.
2: This has been described as an example of environmental racism in Canada. Do you agree?
3: I agree 100% that this is environmental racism because the communities that are affected downstream don't have the mass population that are out there. And if this was running down towards Calgary, I guarantee you this would never happen the way it did and it it would probably be confined within day two.
2: I said that on Friday's show, but, and I hate to say it. Uh, I hate to put these words out into the universe, but I absolutely 100% agree with you that this would never be tolerated, and I believe that the general public would be outraged if a relatively affluent and dare I say, white community had been threatened in this way with regards to water quality or or land pollutants. And I believe that the general public needs to take this much more seriously. I saw you quoted over the weekend where you said you wanted to be able to begin to restore trust when it comes to industry partners like Imperial Oil, when it comes to Alberta's energy regulator. At what point do you lose interest in rebuilding a trust-based relationship. And in that circumstance, what might action look like?
3: At this point in time, there is no trust between uh, the Athabasca Chippewa First Nation and the uh, government of Alberta, nor is there any trust with industry at, at this point in time. We may have multiple agreements uh, with industry, but because of what had happened here with Imperial, all other industry agreements are in question right now.
2: Uh, We've got uh, a a pretty active and engaged live chat right now that's watching this on YouTube, Chief, and and many people are asking, well, what can we do? I I think one of the obvious conclusions is to contact your elected representatives and demand accountability right here. But what might I not be mentioning? What can the general public do uh, if they want to essentially join a movement here to demand more accountability?
3: I think like you said, you know, get in contact with your MLA and everything to share them that this is not right. Uh stand up for our small community in Fort Chip One. You gotta remember Fort Chip One is the oldest community in Alberta. Uh without without Alberta, Fort Chip one uh was the first established that was reached from, you know, colonization and everything. So keep in mind that uh Alberta was created from Fort Chip. And if this is the way that we're gonna be treated from Albertans, well then we're going to think different about how we're how we're going to be situated
2: yeah no kidding uh chief adam before i thank you for your time is there anything i've not asked you about that you want to make sure people hear
3: i'm just you know um disheartened about the fact that this has had to happen uh we tried you know over the years to make everybody accountable and it just goes to show that you know as long as the Minority of the people don't stand up and talk about what's going on. Uh, Big corporations will continue to uh, do what they want. And if there's no watchful eye, like they are very regular to do their job correctly, well, then who do we have that's out there that's going to man the position to keep our community safe?
2: Yeah, more than fair comments. Thank you so much for your availability today, Chief. And and please do keep in touch. We'll do the same. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you got it. That's Chief Alan Adam, uh, the uh, Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. <laughs> Tony says well, what about the feds is there anything they can do I mean we got a sense I mean this the, you know jurisdiction this is where different levels of government kind of ran run into each other right and and, and you heard that from minister Boas that's not to just take people off the hook but it is the Alberta energy regulator right this is a matter for the provincial government and this is where politicians, provincial politicians find themselves in a real predicament. You know, we spent half of last week talking about Alberta's budget and the and the, and the enormous contribution that industry makes to Alberta's bottom line. But at what cost? You know, 16 billion dollars expected in oil and gas related revenue over this next year funding a massive budget with huge expenditures. But again, at what cost? And how can we as Albertans, how can we as Canadians tolerate or accept or allow something like this to happen? You know, these these big oil players that, of course, employ so many people and contribute so much uh, to the country's economic performance. But at the same time, communities just downstream from here demanding action after years and years of, well, betrayal. What else do you call it? If pollutants are leaking out of oil sands operations into the land and water, and there are demonstrable consequences, you cannot deny the rates of cancer in that community, in Chief Adam's community. You can look back into our archives. We'll link to our 2021 interview with Chief Adam in the show notes on the podcast and on YouTube. One of the quotes that he had in that interview, he said, you don't appoint dracula to investigate blood problems he doesn't have any confidence he didn't at that point either in the regulator or in industry to regulate itself so the question is where do we go from here on our live chat it for air mitch says this is 100 provincial jurisdiction it's too bad the province just doesn't seem to care about the environment or albertans jillian says fun fact other governments Other provinces do exploit resources without completely polluting the environment. Mark says, Mark Doran, by the way, who was on here talking about orphan wells, and they're not all just orphan wells, by the way, I should be clear. We talk about this R star and this, you know, 20 billion dollar program, though the premier's kind of dug in her heels. I know Mark's pointed that out. She said that there's a misunderstanding around this R-Star program. We're going to hear a lot more about that during this election campaign because you better believe the NDP is going to come at the UCP over that. Mark says, thanks for coming on, Chief Adam, and speaking out. Mad respect. I don't even know what I would do if I was Chief Adam. I mean, you get to the point where Randy Thunderhorse says, remember, guys, this is not an isolated incident. He says this has been happening since the first oil sands. Operation was built in the 1960s. Randy says, my relatives, all indigenous people, have been dealing with this for decades. Michelle says, the fact that everybody's just hearing about this makes it a cover-up. MA says, I don't know if you give the Fed, get the feds off the hook on this. MA says, you know, you look to Stephen Harper for removing most of the water regulations in this country. Man, we're going to be talking more about water in the months and years to come. Shared stories on the live chat says water standards led by indigenous leaders need to be our land standards. Others of you are pointing out that the Minister of Forestry, Parks and Tourism is the Honorable Todd Lowen. I mean, there's a lot of ministries, right? Energy minister, environment minister. I mean, obviously, I mean, this is something where you'd expect the premier to be taking a position on this. The question is who's pulling the strings and who has the influence Keep the comments coming. Sharon says, indigenous peoples are always, it seems, the first to be affected by this type of stuff. GE says, I can't believe this is real life. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send us an email. And of course, we'll continue to keep an eye on this story uh, as it unfolds. And of course, we'll continue to rely on your firsthand perspectives as well. We always want to know how these stories are landing with you. Coming up in just a second, we're going to talk to an advocate. He's a lawyer, Andrew Green, who works with the Edmonton Community Legal Center. He, he works to get people on AISH. He works to to help people keep their AISH. I'm going to let him tell his story. But he's, quite frankly, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I had a, a chat with him last week about this interview coming up. And, well, he's fed up. He's sick and tired, and I know some of you are as well. Y- you know, all you need is somebody a loved one, somebody you care about to rely on, AISH, this is the assured income for the severely handicapped in Alberta to understand how bad it really is. And it seems that it only pops up from time to time in the news headlines when AISH is used almost as a as a pawn to help the government look good on its bottom line. Right? You remember de-indexing AISH, taking it off of automatic increases due to inflation? right? De-indexing ACE, which meant that is, as inflation made things more expensive, uh, the people, uh, by and large, who were earning the least, or the people who who had the least fiscal resources every month were the ones that had their pay de-indexed. You remember the other incident? You'll remember this last year. I won't get too into the weeds. Andrew can explain it for us. But you, you remember when the, the, the provincial government waited a few days instead of the end of a month, they paid out at the beginning of the next month, which meant that a lot of people's rent payments, a lot of people's automatic uh, withdrawals of their bank accounts bounced because they didn't have their AISH payments there. And we found out that it was because the provincial government wanted its books to look a little bit better at the end of that month, at the end of that fiscal year. You remember that? They've been used as pawns. These thousands and thousands of Albertans and Andrew Green is here to put this on our radar and to get our attention. We wouldn't be having these conversations without sponsors like Complete Care Restoration. And I want to tell you about them for a second. You can check them out online at completecarerestoration.ca. They're the incredible team that built our Real Talk studio. But the majority of the work that they do is helping people recover from disaster, like fire and flood. Maybe you've been doing a minor reno that's turning into a big project because you knocked out a wall and you discovered mold. Or maybe you found out that you're... Your house is of that vintage that they used asbestos when they first built it. Complete Care Restoration is a full service contractor. They can do it all. Of course, trauma scene cleanup, personal contents restoration. They're in their 10th year in business in Edmonton. Like all great companies, many of them anyway, they started out in the garage, they grew from there. They are still locally owned and operated and I personally recommend them. You can find them online. Let your insurance company, in case of disaster, know you want to deal with complete care restoration. Now, from, from disaster to, well, a bit of a different type of construction, bringing outdoor spaces to life. If you're looking to transform your front yard, your backyard, all of it this summer, why not start today with a visit to landscapeedmonton.ca? That's where you'll find Eden Landscaping, another family-owned business, even building custom landscapes for more than 20 years in Edmonton and area. And you talk to anybody that's hired Eden Landscaping, you're gonna get a glowing review. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why. One of them is that this is a team that thrives on challenges. A lot of times they'll roll into a job that was started by another landscaping company, but they ran into issues. They haven't been able to figure out or solve the irrigation or the drainage challenges. Or maybe there's a scenario calling for a retaining wall, which requires a specific experience. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to run into problems. You want those problems solved? Start with Eden Landscaping. You need a space to zen in, to entertain in, to produce food in. You find the fusion of need and style with Eden Landscaping. And also a big shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. We're into the month of May, or I wish. We're into the month of March, which means that they've got new blizzards of the month. They've got new special features on the food menu. Last week, I was telling you all about their chicken baskets. They've got the best chicken strips in the game, and that includes that sauced and tossed the honey barbecue glazed chicken strip baskets. Oh man, these are absolutely fantastic. They're 100% seasoned, all tenderloin chicken strips. That's really significant from a quality and taste standpoint covered with DQ's signature honey barbecue sauce. You can find the Sauced and Tossed Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken Strip Basket at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. That's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount and Baseline Road. When you're in there, In-store or in the drive-thru, you let them know Real Talk sent you to the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. How much do you know about AISH? How much do you know about uh, the assured income for the severely handicapped? We hear about it often around budget time. Oftentimes we'll be reminded that there seem to be perpetual or at least sustained issues with this income support program when, when an individual or an advocate for that individual sounds the alarm, when somebody finally says, I've had enough, and I'm going to a show like Real Talk to talk about it. But if your friends asked you about ACE and the problems associated with it, would we really have the details to form an informed argument about what the real problems are and maybe how they could be fixed? Andrew Green is a longtime advocate, for ACE recipients in Alberta. He's a lawyer, and he does work, a lot of it, with the Edmonton Community Legal Center. And I'm grateful that he's agreed to join us here on Real Talk for a perspective check, making his debut on the show. Andrew, it's wonderful to see you, and thank you for making time for us on this Monday morning.
0: Good morning, and I'm really pleased to be here to talk about ACE and some of the things that can be improved with this system.
2: Can, can, Can I say, can I confess to you that... That in some introductions for an interview, I feel like I maybe don't adequately convey the magnitude of what's happening, the magnitude of the problem, and it's already happened twice this morning. Tailings pond leaks near Athabasca Chip One First Nation and now Ace. Can you sort of set the scene for us and give us an understanding of, of, of how challenging the last number of years have been for Ace recipients?
0: Sure. Let's first of all talk about the fact that there's about 70,000, actually over 70,000 people in the province who are receiving AIDS. These are people who are receiving monies at or below the poverty line, and they are struggling. They're poor, and they have severe disabilities. Now, in the last couple of years, all of us have been through the struggles of the pandemic. And it's been rough. Um, I know times it's been rough for me. But it's been even worse for people who are on age or trying to get on age because of a severe disability. During this time, all sorts of things have come up for people. Extra expenses. There's been the de-indexing of age, And certainly people are happy about it being re-indexed but it's been a real struggle. But before I talk about those struggles, I wanna talk to you about the people because sometimes, you know, I throw around numbers like 70,000 plus people on age, but let's talk a little bit more. Um, I have a real commitment to this area because I am also a person living with disabilities. And I know that Uh, if circumstances were slightly different for me, that I'd be on age today. But the people who are on age are generally between 18 and 65. Uh, That's one of the requirements. They come from every background. Indigenous, we have people from Black communities, women, men, one thing I can say is, marginalized communities are overrepresented. They are, again, every age group. Some are children, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, they may be yours. Um, and it may be at some point in your future, even though you can't conceive of it today, a program that you personally need and if you do it's going to be a struggle to get onto it and that's where we at the Edmonton Community Legal Center try to help people.
2: Andrew can you give us a like what are the specific obstacles that people are facing when it comes to uh not just qualifying for age but staying on it as well?
0: Okay. And I'll I'll just mention as a bit of background, because it does get a little bit complicated, but in order for somebody to be on age, they have to meet a whole bunch of eligibility criteria. It's not easy. One of those eligibility criteria is medical eligibility, which involves three separate things. The first is that the individual must have a physical or mental impairment or both. They must be unable to earn a livelihood because of that impairment and that it's likely that they will permanently be unable to earn a livelihood because there's no treatment available. And I'm paraphrasing that a little bit, but that's the medical eligibility criteria. So then what the person does in applying is they fill out a form themselves and they have their doctor fill out a form. But they never ask the doctor those questions. They never ask, can this individual work? Can this individual, or will this individual be able to work in the future? Those two questions are never asked of the physician. That's a determination of non medical staff at H who are reviewing the information that the physician has provided. So our- opinion. And I, I think it's reasonable to say that physicians are probably best positioned to make that assessment.
2: Will you tell us or will you tell our audience about Laura? Uh, we're, 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 we've changed her name to to obviously protect the, the confidential uh, nature of, 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 I mean, it goes without saying, these are very personal stories and, and, and folks uh, qualification for Asia, or whatnot. We'd never want that to be threatened to have them discussed in the public sphere. But you talked to me about Laura. You told me that, and I wrote this down, Andrew, following our phone call that she was spared, but not really spared. Would you share her story?
0: Sure. And Laura is not her real name, but she has given me permission to share. Laura has had a really difficult time in the last few years. But honestly, life for Laura started out really tough. Laura was born in an indigenous community that went through a forced relocation when she was an infant. And about half of her community uh, in the 10 years after that died. Laura was spared from that. She lived. But she had to go through and her community had to go through another indignity. She was a Sixty Scoop survivor. And that meant that she was taken from her community. She lost all connections to her culture, to her family. And was placed in foster care. And in foster care, she struggled on a daily basis with racism as a child, being the only child with uh, a different skin tone um, in her small community. And then uh, one day after being made fun of for her skin color and her hair Uh, She went home to her foster mother and said, why didn't you adopt me? At least then I would have a family. And Laura told us about this in the appeal. And what her mother said was, because I never wanted you here. You were here for the money. Now, let me roll this back for a moment. Why were we at this appeal? Laura has severe PTSD, attachment disorder, and intergenerational trauma. It's gotten worse in the last few years, not better. Uh, During 2021, she spent a lot of time listening to stories about residential schools and dead children and thinking about, again, Perhaps she was lucky to never face that. But it was more survivor's guilt than anything else. So Laura's physician, on that form I mentioned earlier, talked about her intergenerational trauma, her PTSD. But intergenerational trauma doesn't fit into uh, mental or physical impairment, or at least didn't seem to. And so she was denied. And one of the things that happens when people are denied age is they often begin to question themselves. Am I making too much of a deal about my disability? Am I the one with the problem? And of course, Laura spiraled further. Eventually, she did get age. She went through an appeal. So we could say, hey, that's a success. But that took two years. And it didn't happen without damage to Laura. Because people would not trust her physician. She had to go in and bear some of the most difficult and painful memories of her life and dredge those up.
2: Well, and Andrew, and is it safe to say that it likely, I mean, I guess this is me asking you to speculate, but she likely may have not been approved had she not had you in her corner, had, had she not had the, you know, the Edmonton Community Legal Center in her corner? I mean, I I would imagine you, you said how many people on H? Did you say 70,000?
0: It was over 70,000. So
2: you, I'm, I'm assuming you don't have 70,000 clients.
0: No, We do. Appeals in hundreds per year or deal with individuals in hundreds, um, not thousands. And we don't have the resources to deal with um, um, 70,000 or even 5,000 people a year.
2: This is this is just an anecdotal observation, but I've, I've talked about Asia as a talk host over the last 10 years or so several times, uh, many times, I would say. And and I, I get the sense I'm not saying that this is consensus public opinion at all. I don't think that it is, but there seems to be this pervasive belief that that Asia is is wrought with fraud, uh, that there's a lot of people that are collecting monthly checks that that they don't deserve or that they don't need. Uh you seem to have a pretty good grasp of the system. Is that a real thing?
0: It isn't. It's absolutely not. These are people struggling to survive. And I can say that, like anything else, there will be the occasional instance of fraud. But they're extremely rare. And it's extremely difficult to get age. What I will say is sometimes we tell ourselves things so that we feel better. We feel better about the fact that we struggled through a pandemic, but other people had their HD indexed, were already living below the poverty line and were making difficult choices about whether or not they wanted to pay for electricity or food. School supplies or rent. And those are the struggles that sometimes we don't want to confront. So we tell ourselves, well, there's a lot of fraud there and the system needs to be tough. But the people that I'm experiencing are really struggling. They're hurting.
2: Andrew, credit where it's due, the the UCP, the the provincial government, re-indexed AISH payments to the Consumer Price Index this year, uh, meaning that benefits will be adjusted annually to account for inflation. Is that change? Oh, man, I I know what you're going to say already. You're going to tell me that it's not enough to address these challenges with AISH. but, But let me ask you this. Let me rephrase the question. How much more work needs to be done?
0: A lot. I'll, I'll start with the, the simple answer. We need to do a lot of work. And people really are needing that re-indexing of age. I will say that it's it has uh, eased some of the pressure. I won't say it's resolved things, but they're still not at a level they would have been if age had not been de-indexed. I will also say that this isn't all about how much money that people receive each month. There's no assistance for somebody with a mental disability to even fill out the forms and get on age. That's not built into the system. If somebody is unable to express themselves in writing, the first time that they're going to speak to a person is at an appeal. The system itself is designed in a way that um, harkens back to a different time. Um, And what do I mean by that? Heck, I'm talking about people with disabilities today. When I'm in an appeal, I don't talk about disabilities because the act and regulation never mentioned the word disability. That wasn't used at the time when it was created. That was 1984, I believe. And they use the term handicaps. Now, most of the people that I speak to find that to be an outdated term. I find it to be an outdated term. But it's also the culture that has developed there over decades where it has been treating people at arm's length, not specifically assisting those who need assistance, not referring them to services um, automatically. For example, you would think that for every person who is told they may appeal their denial, they're given community resources, automatically telling them, here's who you can go to and get some more information about that. People are never told that. Andrew, and they, If they follow up, they're given that information.
2: This is, uh, I'm not looking to get anybody off the hook. As a matter of fact, I guess what I'm doing is looking to get everybody on the hook here. This is not uh, a partisan problem. I mean, big picture, Progressive, conservative, new democratic and united conservative governments have all had an opportunity to to, quote unquote, fix this. Um, In conclusion, what could a provincial government do? And more specifically, what will you be looking to hear from the NDP and the UCP once the official campaign period begins ahead of the May 29th election? What's something specific you'll be looking to hear?
0: What's your plan for major reforms of the AESH Act? How do you plan to bring that into the 21st century so that fewer people are hurting? And the reason why I'm here today is that I hope that it won't just be me listening for that and hoping to hear that, but that every one of your viewers are saying, hmm. Perhaps I don't know Laura, but I know people who are like Laura, who are struggling, who may have to access age in the future, and I don't want them to face additional barriers. I don't want them to be um, delayed for a couple of years and suffering while they go through a process that they often don't even really completely understand. So I would like for reform of the ACE Act, um, our organization and, and many other nonprofits have talked about the fact that we can move this into the 21st century. And nonprofits are probably best positioned to be at the table along with people with disabilities to say, hey, you know what? We can help you, regardless of whom that government is, to bring this age act into the 21st century. My worry is that without public interest, that we won't get that engagement, that there won't be the desire That we can simply say, you know what, there's a lot of fraud there and they need to be tough on these people. And that makes us feel better. But it also means the issue never gets addressed.
2: Hit the nail on the head. That's Andrew Green. He's an advocate, a lawyer uh, with the Edmonton Community Legal Center. You can learn more about what they do. uh, Connect with the ECLC on Its website, that's eclc.ca. Of course, you can find all of this information in the show notes. And if this is a story that is resonating with you, either you or someone you care about is on AISH or trying to get on AISH or maybe is struggling in a way that we did not reflect or specifically discuss in the show today, we encourage you to be in touch with us. Help broaden and deepen our understanding of this very real issue. These are human beings, fellow Albertans we're talking about, Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can reach the show. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. And, and just on behalf of this province and its four and a half million citizens, thank you for your tireless advocacy on this matter. Thank you. You got it. That's eclc.ca. And man, the engagement in our live chat today. Something's been going on on this Monday morning, Real Talkers. You are motivated. Shout out to the Self-Advocacy Ad- Self Federation. They've been really active in our chat here. They're saying, thank you for having this conversation. We're a disability-led organization in in Edmonton. Said people need to be learning more about EI and, and Canada Pension Pan clawbacks. I've heard this story before as well. Uh, this commenter says, you know, people, mostly women with disabilities, uh, will lose their age benefits if a non-disabled partner is making more than the threshold. So, you know, it ensures that the disabled person has to stay in a sometimes abusive or exploitive relationship. Goes on to say, persons with disabilities deserve to be able to contribute to their partnerships. Others of you have had experience. Tracy's talking about, you know, starting with a child at age 17 to begin that application process. Says it it can take at least a year to get to the point where an 18-year-old, an adult, can begin on age. Says we, we became guardians, trustees, group homes are too far away. I mean, these are people with personal lived experience. It's never lost on me that this is an audience. Uh, we talk about, a lot about the engagement, but the lived experience here, sometimes in tragic or very difficult circumstances, but, but it helps us better understand the importance of these matters. I saw a great friend of the show, Lou Jobs, shining in. Uh, you remember Lou was on the show. He sat with me in studio talking about his journey into and out of homelessness and addiction. I mean, just a remarkable guy. He, I mean, just to come on here and tell his personal story was amazing. Lou in the live chat says 70,000 people on age. But if the government were to pay him $3,000 a month right now, it's it's about 60% of that. So that's like 210 million a year. We just turned profits of billions. I mean, you're right, Lou, right? I mean, like, you know, 12, $13 billion surplus in Alberta's budget last year. Lou says, how are we not looking after our most vulnerable better than that? You can let us know how this lands with you. This might be fodder for trash talk for some of you. That's presented by local environmental services. Every Friday on the show, we give you a chance to kind of blow off some steam and say what needs to be said, say what needs to be heard. Local environmental services, it's no accident that that's their avenue for sponsoring this show because they care deeply about local communities. You know, they believe that communities deserve better. Even on the business front, what they do, garbage, recycling, that's not it, but better service, better prices, more support for local causes. In uh, Edmonton or Whitecourt, Regina, an area, they've expanded their footprint into Saskatchewan. You can look to them for a whole bunch of uh, community services. Maybe it's music festivals that you're preparing to host or farmer's markets or whatever. Uh, You've got fencing and portable toilets and water hauling. I know for our rural audience, water hauling is a big deal. Why not take your business to a family-owned company? Local Environmental Services has core values that sets them apart from all the big multinationals, right? You can learn more about their core values today. Compelling reasons to take your business to Local Environmental Services on their website, localenvironmental.ca. Yeah, we also talk a lot about opportunities. Want you to, if you're looking for to shake up your career, maybe you're a professional engineer that's looking for a change of pace, something different, more rewarding projects. Enter Apex Automation into the chat. That's ApexAutomation.ca. You can find out current job postings. They are always adding new job postings to their website. Honestly, always hiring. You can check out the careers link online and learn more about, you know, industries that they're serving, including chemical manufacturing plants in Vancouver, Saskatoon, Edmonton. Maybe you're looking for a change of scenery, potash mining in Saskatchewan, material handling like overhead cranes, conveyor belts, robotics. If someone that you know, maybe even starting out their career, just coming out of polytechnic school or university, maybe they've just graduated. They got that ring that all the professional engineers get and they're looking for a great place to start their career where they'll be valued we suggest you point them toward apexautomation.ca wanted to mention uh, our good pal charles adler who typically joins us here on the show on mondays i know some of you have been wondering where chuck's been for the last couple of weeks he's on vacation he's just taking some time off and we look forward to when we'll have charles back on the show uh, and of course, uh, we also wanted to remind you that if you hadn't yet heard about Sapria Devetti and why she's not been joining us on Fridays, you can look to last week's uh, show on that. Sapria and her family are, are in for a fight. Uh, right now her husband diagnosed with stage four lung cancer as she so bravely shared with us uh, and there are also implications that we wanted to mention as well our podcast seriously that Sapriya and I do on Wednesdays is on hiatus for the next while uh, it goes without saying our hearts are with Sapriya and her husband Anoop, of course their family their beautiful young daughter and uh, of course we will keep you updated as is appropriate on that fight before we get to positive reflections today, presented by Kubi Energy, an amazing survival story out of Switzerland. You're not going to believe this video. I, it, I, I've i watched it 10 times already. I can't even wrap my mind around what I'm seeing in the Swiss Alps. I wanted to get to an email from Don. Uh, Don was watching our show uh, last week with Johan Hari. Did you see this? The author of Stolen Focus. Johan uh, checking in from London, England, ahead of his appearance coming up in Edmonton in support of the Mental Health Foundation you can still get tickets to that breakfast and you can find the link for tickets uh on the show notes you're looking for last week's real talk program are you addicted to your phone I know it's a question that makes some of you uncomfortable, but we were talking to Johan about about this new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. And it resonated with Don, who sent me this on Saturday morning, said I had a chance to watch the show on YouTube. I love this. Don uses Saturday mornings to catch up on Real Talk. Says two excellent interviews. Uh, Number one, Stolen Focus sure is a timely topic. And Johan's Graceland tour commentary was both funny, and worrisome. He told us about a trip to Memphis with a family member. Don says, as a teacher and an administrator for a number of years in Alberta, along with a few years of subbing, substitute teaching and retirement, a constant challenge for educators is the distraction, the short attention span of students. An impact to consider is the decline in writing skills, even literacy skills, as everything has been reduced to brevity. No kidding, right? Like emojis now, right? Says a mile wide and an inch deep or an inch wide and a mile deep is how a former colleague describes the problem when it comes to students' understanding of issues past and present. Phone theft or a refusal to put the phone away in the early days of student cell phone use were regular administrative issues. Now, it seems like teachers have just surrendered. I've also observed some educators themselves connected to the phone quickly. Uh, So the issue is not a one-way street. I recall another former colleague who had a student in class receive a call in class from a parent to discuss holiday plans. The teacher spoke with the parent on the student's phone, got into a disagreement with the parent who felt they could phone their son or daughter in class at any time. Don says, a great topic and an informative and thoughtful interview. Says, I'm now on a waiting list at my local library, to sign out Johan Hari's latest book, Stolen Focus, Don. We'd love to hear it. And thanks for taking the time to send us an email. Every Monday or the first show of every week, thanks to our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. You can check out kubienergy.ca for a free quote on solar panel installation. We focus on a story that, well, kicks your week off on the right foot. It's a story that reminds us that there are wonderful things happening all around us, oftentimes falling outside the news cycle. We call it positive reflections. And this is one that, I mean, I'll describe it for you podcast listeners. Shout out to the podcast subscribers, but this is one you've got to watch on YouTube. You know, you can always find positive reflections episodes specifically identified on our Real Talk YouTube channel homepage. This is Is the incredible moment that a missing backcountry skier buried under snow was able to wave down a rescue chopper with only one arm sticking out i'm serious check this out this video was shot by matthew lambert in switzerland it shows a man Desperately waving with his only free limb as a helicopter hovers above, shining a, a spotlight down on the mountain. The young man has not been named, was ski touring in the Lider region of Switzerland when yeah, an avalanche hit. His family alerted rescue services when he didn't return on time, which means that he had already been buried for hours a rescue and transport company by the name of air glaciers received the alert Uh, this was earlier in february and dispatched a rescue helicopter with a paramedic and two rescue guides so they started by checking the parking lot where the man had started his journey to ensure that he hadn't returned to his car of course and then they began flying over the route that he had provided his family now that's a lifesaver right there he let his family know where he was going the team eventually located visible ski tracks. Keep in mind, they're doing this in the pitch black. They're doing this overnight. And one of the guides was dropped off to trace those tracks. Now, miraculously, using only the searchlight on the chopper, the team was able to spot the man's arm waving back at them. Uh, they were able to drop in rescue personnel who successfully extracted him from the large pile of snow blocks. They then hoisted him 30 meters, that's 100 feet, to safety. He's now back with his family, alive, thanks to the rescue team at Air Glaciers and the quick thinking of his family. Always plan ahead. And we hear of these stories, it's been a tragic year for avalanches in British Columbia. You know, 12 people have lost their lives in BC in avalanches this year alone, including some tourists just last week. This is a story that reminds us that sometimes, thanks to proper planning and human ingenuity, courage, that these things can have a, well, a happy ending. You can send us an idea for positive reflections anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It is presented, as always, by our amazing friends at KUBI Renewable Energy. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to head out to Damascus, Syria. That's where real talker Raya Lisa Schmidt-Tegan is. She's working with a group that's responding to that horrific Turkey-Syria earthquake. Of course, the devastation there is hard to wrap your mind around, but there's still stories of survival this nation, these two nations recovering from what's described as disaster heaped upon disaster. We're going to go straight to the source and learn more. We hope you'll join us.
0: Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie cook Chivers. Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources Lena Shepherd. Website Design Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson.